Well, hey everybody, once again, great to see you and those of you joining in from the midst of Snowpocalypse. It's an honor to have you along for the ride. And I actually do have to make a football comment. I know we already talked about what happened last Monday night, which was one of the most glorious moments of my entire existence. But other than like getting married, birth my children, you know, other things. But yeah, it was big. But I do have to give a shout out to our friends over in Detroit. And there's a little football game going on tonight. That's right. And I, I believe in miracles. So there you go. I mean, the miracle isn't what's going to happen tonight. It's that we're here. And I think from here, we're just going to coast to a Super Bowl victory. I'm just throwing it. That's my prediction. I wouldn't bet on it, but I, I, that's my prediction. Anyway, we are in the second week of a series called What is God Like? That as many of you know, is based on a talk that I gave last fall that was also called What is God Like? And, and in the talk last fall, we explored a conversation that Jesus had with his first followers, in which he told them something absolutely incredible, both for them and, I would argue, for us. Here's what Jesus said. He looked at his guys and he said, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And he's speaking of, of God the Father. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then he just throws it out there. Anyone who has seen me has seen him. In, in other words, Jesus said, guys, the more you get to know me, the more you get to know God. And if you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've heard me, you've heard him. And if you've watched me, you've watched him. He sent me to earth to show you what he's like. And so we explored this, and then I went on to note that, that this reality is really what makes those New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, you know, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, it makes them so invaluable because they literally contain the answer to the question of what God is like. Said a bit differently, when we read those accounts of Jesus and we see how he interacted with and responded to all sorts of different people, we get to see how God feels about all sorts of people, including us. And, and so now, that said, each week in this series, what we're going to do is explore a narrative from the life of Jesus and then ask what that narrative tells us about what God is like. And today we get to unpack what I believe to be one of the most practical, applicable answers to the question of what God is like. Um, and, and I'm going to just throw it out there at the beginning, and then we'll talk about how we got there. Here's, here's what we're going to talk about today. What is God like? Well, God knows that only love can change the world. In other words, God is well aware that the only way for him and us to bring needed and lasting change to our world isn't what comes naturally to us it's love. And the reason that I can say that so confidently is because of a conversation that Jesus had one day with his first followers. I believe it's a conversation that they never forgot, a conversation that shaped the way that they lived the rest of their lives. But once again this week, before I show you that conversation, I need to give you some context because, well, like we so often find, the key to understanding what Jesus says is in the context that surrounds the conversation. And, and so, uh, by way of context, I'll start with this. Um, if you were with us last week, you know that almost all of Jesus' original disciples came from a three-town region near the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee that scholars call the Orthodox Triangle. So these three towns sort of make up a triangle, Bethsaida, Chorazim, and Capernaum. And, and they call it the Orthodox Triangle because in Jesus' day, it was home to some of the most passionately devout Jews in the entire world. Uh, people living in this three-town region and even the broader region were radically committed to learning and following the ways of God and passing those ways down to their children. 
So I told you about that last week, um, but what I didn't tell you last week is, is in the first century, in Jesus' day, as so often happens in highly religious communities, the people in this region had become incredibly uncomfortable with people who did not share their religious priorities and convictions. And so consequently, what arose a few decades before Jesus called his disciples was a new movement, and it was started by a man named Judah from a town called Gamla, which you can see on the map is just a few miles east of the Orthodox Triangle. But historians tell us that Judah of Gamla, or Judah the man from the town of Gamla, established a violent religious resistance movement against Rome that called its members zealots. And the zealots' ultimate goal was to raise up an army in order to defeat the Roman forces that had occupied Israel and then to reestablish Jewish rule in their land. And, and some of the most radical zealots were known to carry small daggers under their cloaks in order to carry out assassinations on influential people who they believed were too comfortable with Rome, including Jewish religious leaders and even members of their own families. They had a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. They were passionate and they were dangerous. In fact, there's a Jewish historian, famous Jewish historian from the first century named Josephus, who himself was from this region who described the activity of the zealots in the first century as nothing less than a reign of terror. Nonetheless, to an ultra-conservative religious people frustrated and exhausted by an oppressive occupation, the zealots were admired, especially by the young people. Uh, when I was preparing for today, I found a description of how these people in the North felt about the zealots from a biblical scholar and author named Eugene Peterson. He wrote a book called The Jesus Way, which actually, if you're interested, is a great book. But here's what he tells us. He says, why were the zealots so compelling? Well, they believed they were committed to a cause which they believed was God's cause. They had a vision for a better world and were ready to die for it. He said, we must remember that the zealots were popular heroes among the Jews. And I would argue they were heroes because, well, in a practical sense, they were where people looked for hope. And, and so if you and I were to, you know, travel back in time and sort of interview a zealot and, and say, well, how in the world do you justify your violence in the name of God? They would point to three foundational doctrines that they had developed and passed on. So first, they believed that only God had legitimate authority in all matters of life. And so by implication, every other authority, including Rome, had to be resisted by every means possible. In fact, zealots didn't pay their taxes to Rome. You really want to upset your overlords? Just don't pay your taxes. Uh, so that was their first thing, no authority but God. The second, zealots were convinced that God was on their side. And this conviction led them to tolerate incredible personal suffering. They believed that they were doing what was right in God's eyes. And, and then finally, they believed that one day God would send a Messiah. It's the Hebrew word, it means anointed one, to lead them to freedom by exercising both supernatural political power and military might. In other words, the zealots believed that ultimately force was the only way to bring needed change to their world. And in Jesus' day, it's no exaggeration to say that this understanding that force was the way had completely permeated the worldview of people, and especially young people, living in the towns 
on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the same towns where Jesus spent most of his time and from which he called almost all of his likely teenage disciples. In fact, one of the first men Jesus chose to be a disciple is identified in Mark's account of Jesus' life as Simon the Zealot. Like apparently he wasn't even hiding it, right? And two of the other disciples, Judas and Peter, we know, uh, carried swords with them while they traveled with Jesus. And, and you say, well, that, is that, that seems kind of inconsistent with the pictures we have of Jesus. But you have to understand, these young men were from the Galilee. Zealotry was in their blood. And I'm actually convinced that that's why they struggled to understand Jesus' mission so much. They kept placing false expectations on him. They thought because he was the Messiah that he would one day lead a military revolution to rid Israel of the Roman Empire. And, and, and here's the thing. It wasn't just those guys that held that belief. It wasn't even just people around the Sea of Galilee that held that belief. Historians tell us that the symbol of the zealot movement was a palm branch, and that at times Rome actually made waving a palm branch a crucifiable offense. And, and, and so, yeah, if you're familiar with the text, yeah, it was the zealots who lined the streets as Jesus approached Jerusalem on the day we remember as Palm Sunday. In fact, if you read the accounts of that day carefully, you'll notice that Jesus actually wept as he entered the city because he knew that the zealots had fundamentally misunderstood what he had come to do. A man named Luke uh, wrote an account of that day, and he actually recorded Jesus' words as he passed through the crowds of zealots. Here's what Jesus said. He said, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace. He says, but now it's hidden from your eyes. In other words, Jesus says, you're convinced that military force is the way to bring about the peace and the freedom you most desire. But you're chasing a mirage. That's not how it works. You'll never find what you're looking for by leveraging the power of the sword. And then he goes on to say, in fact, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In other words, Jesus said, your desire for peace is noble and the longing in your soul is justifiable, but the path that you're pursuing, it's a dead end. Like, literally. And, and not surprisingly, Jesus was right. In fact, a few decades after he uttered these words in the year 66 AD, a zealot-led military revolt against Rome began. And Rome came down from the north, and then a few years later, some 60,000 Roman soldiers lay siege to the city of Jerusalem for five months before completely destroying both the city and the Jewish temple. Uh, Josephus, that Jewish historian from the first century I told you about before, he recorded that as many as one million people died as a result of the aftermath of the revolt, and another 60,000 Jews were taken captive and forced into slavery this was a tragic end to the zealot movement. But see, I would also argue that it provides us, like 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, with powerful answers both to the question of what God is like and how we can bring needed change into our world. Because as it turns out, Jesus taught his disciples a very different path to bring about change. He knew that military rebellion could never bring about lasting freedom. And so he invited his followers to leverage something 
well, something else, something um, even more powerful. And he actually began to hint at this something during one of the first times he taught his disciples. So here's, here's kind of the setup. Shortly after inviting them to follow him, he led them up a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and he began to teach them. And you got to remember, as these young men with zealotry in their blood, if not in their blood, in the air, what Jesus taught them that day would have absolutely blown their minds. Jesus began with words like these. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And it sort of goes without saying, but meekness would not exactly have been valued in a culture under the influence of the zealots. Like Jesus' disciples would have been taught that the strong were the ones who inherit the earth. Because that's how it had always been. I mean, might makes right. Right? Well, as I imagine it, uh, the disciples would have been kind of looking at each other thinking, did, did we hear him correctly? And as they were wondering, Jesus kept talking. And he said stuff like this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And, and if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In other words, he looks at these guys. I mean, their eyes just had to be so wide and says, guys, I want you to leverage nonviolent resistance to injustice. Don't ignore it, but this is how I want you to challenge it. And I'm telling you, they would have been stunned, especially with this last instruction about going the extra mile he said, well, the Romans had rules about what their soldiers could legally demand from the people whose land they occupied. And, and one of these rules said that a Roman soldier could ask anyone whose country was under Roman control to carry their pack with them one mile. The packs were heavy, they guessed maybe 80 pounds. It was a big deal to carry a pack. But the zealots hated this rule. And Jesus looked at his followers and said, listen, if you're ever requested to carry a Roman soldier's pack for a mile, I want you to willingly go a second mile. At which point, anyone with any sympathy towards the cause of the zealots would have gone into a silent rage. They would have been thinking, come on, Jesus, you cannot possibly mean that. This is not how the world works. And then Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They're like, yeah, that's how we live. Good rule to live by, right? He says, but I tell you, they're like, no, you don't get to butt. This is Moses. This is not, you don't get to mess with Moses. But Jesus did. But, but I tell you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And I imagine them folding their arms going, I hope he's speaking metaphorically because this ain't happening. Nobody lives like this. Jesus, you've got to be kidding. We will never change the world living like that. We're going to be doormats. That's not how it works. And I imagine they had conversations as the days went forward from this moment just thinking, this doesn't make sense. And they're thinking, what does Jesus really mean? And then a few days later or weeks later, we're not sure how long, Jesus said this. Whoever wants to be my disciple, and they all did, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And Jesus hadn't been crucified at this point, right? But I'm telling you, the disciples would have heard this and they would have just wanted to scream. The cross, Jesus, you can't be serious. The cross is a symbol of political power and domination. It's what the Romans do to people who don't follow their rules. Jesus, every time there's a crucifixion, that meant that Rome won. We, don't, we want to put them on crosses, not deny ourselves and carry our crosses. 
I mean, carry your cross, that's like a life of living sacrifice. That's not how you change the world. But see, here's the thing. According to Jesus, it is how you change the world. He knows because he knows that violence cannot ultimately stop violence because violence always brings about more violence. And so the only way for you to bring an end to violence is to lay down your sword, and Jesus would say, and crucify your hatred of others. And again, this was something Jesus taught and this was something Jesus modeled, like over and over and over again. I would argue he modeled it especially memorably on the night that he was betrayed by one of his disciples to a group of corrupt religious leaders. A night when the temptation emotionally for Jesus to use force would have been at an all-time high. Here's kind of how that evening went down. Following the last meal... Jesus shared with his first followers before his crucifixion. He led them one by one and all but one out of the city of Jerusalem to a garden on the slopes of the Mount of Olives where he left them to go off and spend some time in prayer. And then uh, shortly after he returned to them, uh, Matthew recorded that while he was still speaking, Judas one of the 12 arrived. In other words, Judas, who was the disciple who had not made the trip from the city to the garden with them earlier that night, arrived. Uh, a few hours earlier, he had left the group during dinner in order to betray Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders. And it, it was a, a stunning turn of events that one of Jesus' inner circle would betray him to the people who wanted him killed. It was, it was a strange turn of events, but I would argue that it's actually understandable if you consider the context. And here's why I say that. If you think about it, Judas had been following Jesus for three years when he betrayed him. And during that time, he had repeatedly heard Jesus teach and he'd seen Jesus heal. Uh, he was in the boat the day that Jesus walked on water. And then most recently, he had been an eyewitness to the resurrection of a man named Lazarus. In other words, Judas knew what Jesus could do Moreover, he understood who Jesus was. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the Son of God. But here's the thing. Even after all that time with Jesus, I think Judas was still committed to the cause of the zealots. And I think that reality is what led him to betray Jesus. And, and, and here's why I say that. I can't prove it to you, but I'm pretty convinced that in this moment, Judas believed that he could accelerate the timeline of Jesus' revolution by betraying him to Rome. I mean, I mean, think about it. Judas had seen Jesus escape from religious leaders who wanted to capture him over and over and over again. It would not have been a stretch for him to think, there's no way Jesus is going to be captured. He's uncapturable. And so I think Judas betrayed Jesus that night, hoping that this confrontation would lead Jesus to take up a sword and finally get down to ridding Israel of the Romans. Anyway, I find it fascinating that the men who accompanied Judas that night, because Judas didn't roll in alone, uh, the men he brought with him came ready for resistance. So Matthew recorded that Judas brought with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders 
of the people. Like apparently the religious leaders had a sense not only that Jesus was incredibly popular, that Jesus was incredibly powerful and they needed to be ready for anything. And so Matthew continued. He says, now the betrayer, that's Judas, had arranged a signal with them. That's the crowd that's armed. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus responded, friend, do what you came for. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And I love that Jesus addresses Judas as friend. I think I might have chosen a slightly less gracious designation. Anyone else with me? I mean, I may have been tempted to say something derogatory about his mama. <laughs> That's me. That's not Jesus. He meets betrayal with kindness and understanding and maybe even compassion. So Jesus didn't just say, turn the other cheek. Jesus turned the other cheek. And let's be honest, he didn't have to. I mean, Jesus had more than a few other options that night. He could have done anything in response to this. But it seems like, it seems like he chooses to do nothing. Anyway, um, as Matthew continues to tell the story, he says that Peter, who, of course, is the disciple who got to walk on water before sinking, Peter is seized with emotion and he reacts aggressively in this moment. He drew his sword. And then again, he happened to have with him that night. And Matthew described the action this way. He wrote that with that, one of Jesus' companions, Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Mm, get him, right? Apparently Peter didn't go to aiming school. But anyway, in this moment, Peter did what comes naturally to all of us. He responded to force with force. And again, to be fair, I'm not sure cutting off an ear accomplishes that much, but that's, that's what he did. And um, I, I mean, I grew up in church, and I remember, you know, as even a high schooler hearing the story and thinking, come on, Peter, I mean, you've been with Jesus. You, I mean, really? Things go wrong? You start swinging? You, you, you got to be kidding me. And I had this, like, tendency to judge him. And then one day, when I was just paying attention, I noticed that I'm kind of quick to draw my sword in moments of conflict as well. Um, I don't actually carry a sword. That would be cool if I did, but no. In my world and in your world, I would argue swords often take the shape of reckless words. In fact, there's a proverb in the Old Testament that says reckless words pierce like a sword. And as any counselor will tell you, sticks and stones may break your bones, but reckless words provide them with a strong sense of job security. Yeah, and anyway, um, as I, as we navigate life, in a broken world, from time to time, we will be tempted to pull a sword in a moment of relational confrontation. Um, sometimes we'll pull a sword on a stranger, but I think it's way more likely that we're going to pull a sword on someone that we know, someone that we love, like a spouse who fails to meet your expectations, or a kid who doesn't follow through on something they're supposed to do, or a friend who lets you down. But see, here's the thing, pulling swords, if we're honest, it feels good in the moment, but it doesn't really help, does it? It doesn't make things better. It, it, if we're honest, it really only compromises like the health of the emotional atmosphere of our home or our workplace, which kind of leads me to an interesting observation, something to think about. It goes like this, uh, swords, swords appear strong, but if you think about it, they're kind of weak. Like pulling a sword, metaphorically speaking, or literally if you're Peter, 
is rarely a calculated decision. More often than not, it's a poor reaction to surging emotions. It's a desperate control grab. And let's be honest, we all have opportunities to draw our swords every single day, right? We can ha it can happen at work, when a meeting doesn't go your way, it can happen at school, it can happen online, when your friend just posts something that just causes your blood to boil. But, but can I ask you a question? What do you think Jesus would instruct his followers to do in these moments? Like, not what do we want to do or what do we feel like we need to do. What would Jesus say? If we were going to, like, say, okay, I'm going to get my what would Jesus do bracelet back out and put it on. And what, what would Jesus do? And we don't have to wonder. We can know because of what Jesus said to Peter that night in the garden. So after Peter had successfully detached the ear of a member of the temple guard, Jesus looked him in the eye and said the following. Put away your sword. Put your sword back in its place. And look at this. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In other words, Peter, pulling a sword doesn't really fix anything. Like when you pull a sword, other people pull the sword. They get defensive, you get defensive, and the whole thing just quickly spirals out of control. Your impulse to retaliate initiates a death spiral of relational conflict. Because again, violence as a response to violence rarely brings about anything but more violence. That's the essence of what Jesus said to his disciples that night in the garden, right before he reminded them that he was not exactly lacking for other options that night. He phrased it this way. Do you not, so put away your sword, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, so God, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. I don't even know how many a legion, but it's a lot. You know what I'm saying? That's, Jesus is like, guys, listen, it's not like I don't have options. I'm Jesus. And, and if you think about it, then, you know, during this encounter, Peter, like, appears strong. The disciples are probably like, yeah, get him, Peter. But it, it, he's kind of weak. And Jesus appears weak, but he's really strong, which, which brings me to another something to think about. It goes like this. It, it takes more strength not to pull your sword. In other words, it, it takes more strength to demonstrate love in the face of violence. And I just imagine Jesus standing there looking at his disciples, maybe holding an ear, thinking, guys, is this what I've been teaching you? I mean, things go wrong and you start swinging. You've you got to get this. I'm about to unleash a revolution that is literally going to change the world. It's going to overwhelm and outlast even the Roman Empire. And I know you can't imagine that. But it's a revolution that you are going to help lead. But you have to understand, it is not a revolution of the sword. It's a revolution of servants. It's a revolution that puts others first. It's a revolution of love and love rarely requires swords. In, in fact, um, I would describe the love that Jesus taught and modeled as sacrificial. Um, if you've ever been to a wedding, there's a passage that gets read like every single time. Uh, I once tried to not do it and, and people were like, where's the passage? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, the love passage. And I love how Paul describes this sacrificial love that Jesus points his followers to and invites them to journey along in. And he reads, he, it says like this, he says, love is patient. It doesn't draw swords. It's patient and it's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. 
It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And then he ends with, love never fails. That sort of love, the Jesus sort of love, is how God changed our world. And I would argue it's how you and I can change our world worlds relationally speaking because as it turns out the most powerful weapon in the world isn't a weapon it's love okay so i've got one more thing for you um as many of you know tomorrow is martin luther king day and uh, while i was preparing for this talk i found a quote from a sermon that he gave called loving your enemies and no surprise it's completely brilliant better than anything i've ever come up with or even thought to come up with. But anyway, speaking of the cross of Jesus, look what Dr. King said. There is a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came into this world. It is an eternal reminder to every generation depending on physical violence that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. And he says, and I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, somewhere men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And I'm telling you, as I was reflecting on this and, and on the text, I'm like, at our moment in history, as we navigate a culture that's deeply angry and deeply polarized, we, followers of Jesus, have been invited to leverage a love that doesn't vilify others and perpetuate the cycle of anger and violence, but that instead chooses to lay down our swords and to live lives for the sake of other people. It's what he did for us, and it's what we've been invited to do for others. And, and so, to, for our, our time together today, as we kind of wrap it up, what is God like? He knows that only love can change the world and we'll pick it up there next week uh, but for now if you're here in the room i'd love to invite you to stand and i'll close our time together in prayer let's pray father thank you for the brilliant truth that was so perfectly embodied in jesus thank you that he did not just come to die for us he came to live for us and to show us a better way to be in this world. And so I, I pray that this week, um, by your spirit, you would alert us whenever we're tempted to grab our swords and you would whisper to us the words of our Savior. Put down your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And so we bless you and we thank you and we love you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Grace and peace to your friends. Drive safely. We'll see you next week. <laughs>